everybody happy friday hope you're all good hope you're all well welcome back to another live edition of the chronicles of a guna podcast with me harry simu lots and lots to get into we're going to talk about my night at the london football awards where declan rice picked up the big one premier league player of the year i'll talk to you uh, a little bit about that i'll also share with you a couple of interviews uh, that i managed to get on the red carpet with theo walcott and David Seaman. We're going to discuss Mikel Arteta's press conference from yesterday ahead of the Sheffield United game in which there were some interesting updates. We're also going to discuss reports that Arsenal have opened contract talks with Jorginho. Plus, we're going to react to David Ornstein's comments with regards to Arsenal's summer priorities. So there's loads and loads and loads to get into on this episode. If you've tuned in and you're wondering where the Sheffield United preview is, we are going to bring you a Sheffield United preview. But I thought given that there is so many other things to discuss and that the game, of course, takes place on Monday night, we're going to bring you that over the course of the weekend. So uh, stay tuned for that. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you turn the notification bell on. Make sure uh, you are leaving reviews if you're listening on all the audio platforms. You know the drill by now. Um, but yeah. Thanks for joining me. Really, really looking forward to getting into this one. Let me say a few hellos before we dive into uh, the subjects uh, that we're going to be focusing on today. Big hello to Afsar. Dini Man joins us uh, from Guyana in South America. Uh, big hello to you, my friend. Uh, big hello to Glenn uh, Goldsworthy. We've got Jack Bowyer in the chat as well. Um, I can't read out N17Gunner's comment, but yeah, uh, good one. Uh, Matt Tomo uh, joins us from Chicago as well. Uh, we've got Matteo joining us from Camden. Big hello to you, mate. Harry says, good morning or hi, Harry, from another Harry. Hope you're all good. Uh, we've got Nexus. We've got Lucio. We've got Matt Tomo. Um, we've got Osua Aboneni with us. Um, Matt also says on the intro, we need to add the Reese Nelson clip. I'll probably break the speakers if I had that one. <laughs> I need to dig that out from somewhere, uh, to be fair. Uh, we've got Joe, uh, we've got Jean, we've got uh, Iginoba as well. Lots and lots of you joining us in the live chat. I hope you're all good. hope you're all th well. Thanks, as always, uh, for being a part of uh, the Chronicles of Aguna family. Okay, so um, let's start off with the London Football Awards. Last night, I was at the London Football Awards for 90 Min. Uh, really, really cool uh, night out. It's, a, of course, uh, an awards ceremony that only focuses on and it incorporates the London clubs. So that can be from the Premier League right down to, you know, League Two um, and even beyond if there's anybody that kind of falls uh, into the kind of catchment area. And, of course, it's an awards night that is... I beg your pardon, really, really special. And uh, all of the funds raised go to uh, Bob Wilson's Willow Foundation, which we all know is a really, 
really special charity. And one of the really nice things was that when a number of players received their awards last night, they, on their way from their tables up onto the stage to receive them and collect them, many of them stopped um, to sort of shake Bob Wilson's hand as if to kind of say, you know, and I wasn't close enough to know what they were saying, but as if to kind of like congratulate him on the amazing work he's doing. And uh, Bob Wilson is an Arsenal legend, no doubt about that. But the work he's done in the community since, um, you know, hanging up his gloves or boots, however you want to put it, uh, he's just done some incredible things. He's been inspired by his daughter. He's been inspired by his wife as well. We recently lost. Um, and the work he does is just brilliant. And he, he continues to do it. And I know there are a lot of other people behind all the excellent stuff that the Willow Foundation do. But Bob Wilson very much is the founder, the face of it. And um, I think lots of people were, were kind of desperate to pay their respects to him yesterday, which I think was a really nice touch. Even, and as much as it kind of kills me to say this because he's a Tottenham manager, even Ange Postacoglu, when he got up to receive his award, which we'll come on to discuss in a bit, he went over, um, he, he shook Bob Wilson's hand. He, he obviously uh, spent a little while speaking to him. I'm sure they caught up at another point as well. Um, and and it was kind of nice for a minute to see that kind of tribalism and rivalry just go out the window or, or just be brushed aside and put to one side to focus on things that are obviously more important. Helping people with disabilities and various other things is way more important than me or you getting upset and angry about a North London derby, regardless of how it feels at that time in the heat at the moment. So um, that was nice to see as well. Um, Declan Rice, uh, as I mentioned, won Premier League Player of the Year and really did deserve it. Um, there's no doubt about that in my mind. Uh, Jared Bowen was in there as well. And, you know, he's someone that I'm sure uh, came pretty close. But Declan Rice, you know, he was great at West Ham. They went on to win the European trophy last season, albeit not the European trophy. And he then moved to Arsenal in a big money deal and he's hit the ground running instantly. There's been no settling in period. There's been no uh, adjustment period. It's been from the very first minute he come in, pure brilliance. And he fully deserved it. And I'll, I'll tell you something about Declan Rice, right? People always talk about what a great footballer he is. And of course he is. But Declan Rice, the person, is incredible as well. Um, when I was leaving the awards, Declan Rice was also leaving the awards. And he was waiting by the door because it was chucking it down with rain. And this was at the Roundhouse in Camden, for those of you that know it. He was waiting by the door for the car, of course, to to arrive, the car that was picking him up. And he had security around him and he had, you know, his entourage, if you like, standing around him. And there was a couple of people that came over and asked Declan Rice for photos. And even though his kind of security were like, no, 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 we got to go, blah, blah, blah. Declan Rice was just so, so warm and friendly with everybody. And that really, really comes across. I've been lucky enough to meet Declan Rice on a few occasions, and that always comes across even prior to him joining Arsenal. It, it came across at a West Ham game I covered um, last year. And I, I just think he's just an incredible person, really down to earth. You can you, you feel that when you hear from him, and we're going to hear from him in a bit because um, my good friends over at BBC London Sport did a cracking interview with him. Aaron Paul um, was conducting that. We'll get onto that in a bit. But you just listen to Declan Rice talking. You just think, wow, um, what a guy. But I want to share with you guys uh, an interview uh, that I did with uh, Theo Walcott. Um, 
before the ceremony began, Theo Walcott was uh, one of the guests. He did present an award. I think it might have been the award that Declan Rice got, if I'm not mistaken. I, I need to check that out. But um, I do want to share this interview with you because I asked him a couple of bits, actually. I asked him about um, the uh, the Bukayo Saka stuff, the Rio Ferdinand comments. I asked him about the atmosphere at the Emirates these days. Um, and we talked. Yeah, it, it was a pretty good conversation. So here uh, is my uh, it, this is a cut down of it because uh, obviously just conscious of time. But this is uh, some of my chat uh, with uh, Theo Walcott. Hold on a second. Let me just make sure, actually, that when I'm sharing the screen, I'm sharing the audio as well. Hold on. Share screen. Um, some screens let you share audio. Look for the share audio tick box window uh chrome tab that's the one and then share tab audio there you go okay just making sure that you guys can hear it as well so here's my chat with uh, theo walcott was playing there for arsenal what did you make of uh, rio ferdinand's comments let's take it back you to you obviously beginning. played that position for arsenal scored a load of goals playing there for arsenal what did you make of uh, rio ferdinand's comments that he's not world class yeah i mean look there's obviously people in time to opinion i get it for me um he is. I think there's, there's numbers are showing that. Um, it's consistency as well right now for wingers in the game. And he's playing in the Premier League, the best league in the world as well. So for me, um, if you're comparing, I don't know, the likes of Foden's, you know, world class as well. You've got all these guys. But back is Saka for me. Most of my son loves him. So yeah, Saka is world class in my opinion. Yeah. You played with Mikel um, during your time at the football club. When I watched him as a fan playing on the pitch for Arsenal, I never envisaged him becoming the coach that he is today. But for you guys that were working alongside him, could you see it coming? Oh, yeah, really could. Um, the passion he shows, I think it's, it's, it's easy to say, like when you watch him now on the sideline, he's a team reflection of him. He's he's so he's calm in some expect, in aspects, to be honest. He's, he's learned from sort of past sort of things that's happened. He's been with Pep Guardiola as well, of course. Um, yeah, he. I always had visions that he was going to be. He's, he's a sort of. He was a leader on the field as well. He always used to call meetings. He'd always be there to talk to you on and off the field. So, yeah, I'm not surprised he's doing really well. And, it, and, he, and of course, he's not done it straight away. He took his time. He's learned his, his trade, and it's, it's working for him. And I'm, I'm really pleased. The atmosphere at the place is completely different now to what it was previously, right? You must feel that. Yeah, it's. You know, I've, I've had the opportunity to go a few times. Took the kids there few weeks back for the Liverpool game and it was just exception it really was and that's what the Emirates is about that's why I'm you know obviously going into the Porto game I'm not really that concerned to be honest because I think the whole Emirates environment the fans the support network is so important so key right now and as, as well it's going to help with the Premier League I think it's going to go all the way I really do but that Emirates support right now and the people you know on the outside of that are really helping this Arsenal team right now there you go. That was my chat with Theo Walcott. Um, you could see in his face, for those of you that are watching the show, um, when I asked the question about um, Mikel Arteta, because I've said it a million and one times, and I don't think I'm alone in thinking this. When I watched Mikel Arteta playing for Arsenal, I'm not saying I didn't think he'd be a successful coach because of a lack of intelligence or, or a lack of an understanding for the game. I just didn't think he had that fire that we see now. Um, maybe he was completely misunderstood uh, for those of us that were watching him from the sidelines. But that was genuinely um, my opinion of Mikel Arteta um, at the time. I'm also going to play you a, a quick uh, cut down of my chat I know you with spent... um, David Seaman because 
Uh, David Seaman was on the red carpet as well. And we talked about other things, but I thought the really interesting part was when we discussed David Raya and how he's settled in at Arsenal. I asked him what he thinks it is that Mikel Arteta sees in David Raya that maybe he doesn't feel he gets from Aaron Ramsdale. And we talked about Arsenal's improvement defensively. Here's what he had to say. Time on the Arsenal training ground, working with the goalkeepers in recent times. And there was a lot of controversy at the start of the season, not within the club, but obviously on the outside, looking in about the Raya-Ramsdale thing. What is it, in your opinion, that David Raya brings to the team that Mikel Arteta is obviously really big on? He's obviously, he's really good with his feet. Um, you know, we're seeing that now. You know, when, when David first came, he, he struggled a little bit. You know, there's no doubt because there was pressure on him. It's, it's Arsenal. It's not Redford, it's Arsenal. You know, so there's added pressure there. Was taking over from, or trying to take over from Aaron. We've got two fantastic goalkeepers at the club. How Mikel keeps them both happy, I don't know. But uh, good luck to him. But um, yeah, you know, we're in a great position. It's going to stay like that for the end until the end of the season, and then we'll see what happens. The defensive record this season has been really, really impressive. I was reading a stat the other day that the XG against for Arsenal is only two goals since the turn of the year. What do you think's changed in the system and and defensively for Arsenal to, to give them this greater control? Um, lack of injuries to players, you know, because then that back four has become stable. You know, I had a fantastic back four in front of me that's legendary. You know, hopefully this back four can get somewhere, somewhere near that. But, um, you know, that's what it is. It's, it's, it's picking teams, picking back fours consistently. And they all get to learn each other's habits. And that's what's happening at the moment, you know. And, and they're doing that with, with David as well. You know, they're learning what he's good at, you know. And, and he is, you know, he's really good with his feet. So, long may that continue and see what it takes us. There you go. That was uh, former Arsenal goalkeeper, Arsenal legend, David Seaman, talking a little bit about David Raya there and the defensive improvement. Now, I'm not one to complain about things like the LFAs. I mean, last year it was really Arsenal dominated and rightly so, because at the time of the award ceremony, we were clearly the best team in London. We were the best team in the country at that point and by quite some distance. But I have to say, seeing Ange Postacoglu win manager of the year, kind of irritated me a little bit because my understanding of these awards is that they are for 2023 or from that, that they are encompassing of the period between the last one, which was in February 2023, and this one, which was in February 2024. Now, it's not that I think Ange hasn't done a good job at Tottenham. I think he has. And I, I don't like saying that, but that is the reality of it. I think he's done a very good job at Tottenham. I think he's turned the mood around at the football club, similar um, to the way that Mikel Arteta has done. And, and if anything, Ange Postacoglu's probably done it quicker. So I, I think he deserves his flowers, Mr. Postacoglu. But to give him the Manager of the Year award after just a few months in charge, I think is a bit wild. And, and somebody, in my opinion, on that has, has gone too early. David Moyes won a European trophy with West Ham United. Now, I know people will say it's the Europa Conference League and all the rest of it, but think about how that sounds in your mind. David Moyes wins a European trophy with a side and a club that traditionally don't win many trophies. Emma Hayes was also nominated, Chelsea women's manager. She has done an incredible job at Chelsea Football Club. That's why news of her going off to the US at the end of the season has been as big as it has. She is a trailblazer in women's football. She's an incredible manager, um, really, really fun and interesting to talk to clearly has some brilliant ideas about the game and all the rest of it. That is two people 
that I would have put ahead of Ange Postacoglu. Plus, I'd throw in Mikel Arteta because of how strong Arsenal have been generally over the last couple of years. And so I make it that there's three people that should have won that award ahead of Ange Postacoglu. And somehow he's got it. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. The Tottenham don't win much. They let them have it. But it just, yeah, it it didn't sit right with me because I like these things to be done on merit. I know that sometimes these things can become popularity contests. And I think that's what we saw uh, there. So uh, that was uh, my kind of uh, brief update from the London Football Awards. Um, We're going to take a really, really short pause. And when we come back, we're going to discuss some of what Mikel Arteta's had to say over the last 24 hours, particularly with regards to a few players who could be on their way back to the first team squad very, very soon. We'll do that right after this. Welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna. If I could just ask you, if you haven't done so already, please uh, leave a like on the video, subscribe to the channel. If you're brand new, turn on your notifications, all the rest of it. It really, really does help. Mikel Arteta has been speaking ahead of the Sheffield United game. And it, I always say that Mikel Arteta's press conferences, they feel like a bit of a dud exercise because especially pre-game, you never really get any idea of what's going on um, in terms of who's available and who's not. He always hides behind the, well, we've got one more training session kind of line. On this occasion, he can do that twice because, or, or he can even double down on that is probably the better way to put it because there's a training session today and I'm sure there'll be Um, some sort of training session on Saturday, if not Sunday as well. So there's a few training sessions now between Mikel Arteta delivering that press conference and then, uh, of course, that game up at Bramall Lane on Monday night. So I didn't expect him to give too much away. But the really, really positive thing that he said was that Thomas Partey is expected to be in the squad for the trip to Bramall Lane. Now, Arteta and Arsenal are not the kind of club He's not the kind of manager that would say that with chest if they weren't really, really confident that that was going to be the case. Of course, we thought Thomas Partey was coming back previously and he suffered a setback. So we've got to be mindful of that and we've got to be aware of that. And we've got to know that when it comes to Thomas Partey's fitness, nothing is a given, nothing is guaranteed. But for him to say that means that they really probably do feel that Partey is ready to participate in some capacity. Will he start the game? I don't think so. Should he start the game? No, I think it's a case of having to build him back up like we're going to have to probably do with Gabby Jesus as well, who was in the squad against Newcastle, but didn't feature, of course. And we've read reports and we spoke about them on the last episode that Arsenal are really, really uh, going to be cautious when it comes to Gabriel Jesus and want to manage him back to fitness uh, in a really careful and responsible way. He also said that Zinchenko and Tomiyasu are not too far away. We finally got some clarity with regards to what the issue has been with Tomiyasu. He said that he picked up an injury in his last game for Japan in the Asian Cup. And when he returned, um, you know, he wasn't fit to come straight back into the side. And that uh, he'd, he'd suffered a little bit at the beginning of the recovery, but he's on the way now. So him and Zinchenko could be in contention for Monday, but... If they're not, they're not. Um, You know, the main thing is that we get them back in the next few weeks. And I think we're on course to do that. He also kind of poured cold water on the idea of Jurian Timber coming into the squad for the game against Sheffield United. He said that, look, yeah, he's back in training. He's with the squad, but he's only doing certain things, as we kind of discussed yesterday um, or the day before, whenever we last recorded. But he basically made the point that, you know, he's not quite at that stage where we can put him in 
uh, and say, yeah, confidently that he can play a part in a Premier League game. And I think that's right. Again, it's a long-term injury. It's one of those things that you have to really uh, manage accordingly, isn't it? OK, um, we're going to talk Jorginho because uh, there's been a bit of an update with regards to his future. According to reports, and I think it was Mark Manns, Brian, who put this report out. So I, I hope I've got that right. Um, I always want to credit the person whose work it is. Um, but he said that Arsenal uh, have begun contract talks with uh, Jorginho over a new deal. Um, and that at this stage, the proposal is a, another year plus another option for another year, um, which is kind of the type of thing that I think probably works for Jorginho quite well in that, you know, he, he's got that incentive. If he performs, there's that option for the club to, to sign him up for another year. I mean, it doesn't give him the guarantee of that other year, which might be uh, something that works against us in terms of the negotiations. But I think Jorginho is is mature enough to know what his role is at Arsenal. And that's partly why I think it was such a good signing, because he was coming in not with a, a massive ego. And for someone who's won the Euros and won the Champions League and had a really good career, you know, you could forgive him for coming in with a bit of an ego. You know, players of lesser um, sort of pedigree have come in and had an ego at times. So Jorginho being quite down to earth, I think is one of his real standout qualities. And he came in knowing that he was coming in to help the squad rather than coming in to be someone that played in the starting 11. And I think as time's gone on, us as fans, we've begun to trust him more and more. I think Mikel Arteta always trusted him. It's clear that he's a player that he always liked and always wanted. Um, and eventually he got his man. The opportunity was there. He took it. Um, we kind of dodged a bullet, really, in not spending an absolute bomb on a couple of other midfielders that we were linked with that I'm sure a lot of Arsenal fans at the time would have preferred. But this guy's come in and he's just done exceptionally well. He's a great weapon to have. He's something different. He's really intelligent. And I think when you've got a manager who likes to be quite complex in his game plans and, and wants to play in a very specific way, to have people of that intelligence who can go out on that pitch and communicate that throughout the game, but then also deliver on it, I think is invaluable. Jorginho is one of those people. Martin Odegaard is another one of those people. And I think that's a big part of Jorginho's value. Technically, he's superb. I think he's really, really good. Is he the best... Physically, probably not, but he never has been. So despite the fact that right now Jorginho is 32 years old, I'm not really looking at the next year and even the year beyond that and worrying about a major significant drop-off because I don't think he's at that level anyway where you're talking about elite physical footballers. So for me, what he brings to the team is, is still going to be intact. It's still going to be um, really, really positive for us. So I'm all for this. And it's not about, you know, tying Jorginho down and then all of a sudden abandoning plans to kind of regenerate a midfield area that probably needs it. That's not what I'm saying here. But Jorginho as a squad player, as an addition, and as someone that you can bring in and out of the team for certain um, game plans and against certain opposition, I think is brilliant. It's low cost. It's um, low risk as a result of that. You're not talking about a long contract term. And I think the most important thing here is that the player recognises the beauty of where he's at and the beauty of the role that he plays and his importance outside of how many games he starts. And he's quite content with that. So I think this is a kind of match made in heaven. I have to say, I would give Jorginho this deal. Whether Jorginho agrees to that or not is another thing. 
Jorginho will have interest from other clubs. His stock has risen since he's come to Arsenal at Chelsea. Towards the end, there was a little bit of a dip in his stock. And I think now you're seeing the best of Jorginho. And I think there will certainly be clubs in Spain and in Italy that will be looking at him and hoping to pick him up. I hope that what we're offering is enough to convince him, but I also don't think we should go crazy in terms of the contract length. So I think Arsenal right now are actually playing this quite well. Okay, uh, let's uh, move on to some of the comments that David Ornstein has made with regards to Arsenal's summer plans. Are the Gunners going to go big on a striker. David Ornstein held uh, one of his Q&As yesterday online, uh, of course, for The Athletic. And I just want to read you um, some of the quotes from uh, that conversation. Uh, David Ornstein uh, on Arsenal's targets in the summer transfer window. He said, a striker is clearly the main focus and they have admiration for the likes of Sesko, Jokeres, Ferguson and others. Then there is a long-term desire to bring in competition slash backup in the wide attacking area. Neto remains of interest, but he is not the only option and it is unlikely Arsenal will pay what I understand to be Wolves' asking price of £80 million. Depending on departures from midfield, a six or an eight might be needed. The long-term links to Zubimendi show Arsenal have substance. Defensively, They'll be boosted by the return of Timber and must hope that Zinchenko and Tomiyasu shake off their injury problems. Because of that issue, you could definitely see a player arriving in this part of the pitch. So let's break that down into sections and try and dissect it and make sense of it. David Ornstein is the ornacle, right? When when people of his stature say these things, people take notice. And that's why I feel they're worth a section on and, and sort of that they're worth breaking down. Some people will point out in the chat that David Ornstein has said stuff in the past and got it wrong. There isn't a journalist in the world that hasn't got something wrong. I've always said this to you guys. Um, You, as a journalist, particularly someone who's, you know, whose remit is to provide breaking news and, and information, you're only ever as good as that information that you get. So there will be times where someone gives you a bit of information. It's wrong. There will be times where someone gives you a bit of information which was true at the time, but then doesn't materialize into the result that maybe, you know, you thought was going to come of it. So there might be an interest in a player that might be true. There might be a bid for a player that might be true. But just because the player doesn't sign doesn't mean that the rest of it wasn't true. So I I think David Ornstein is the best in the business and I'm going to... Always pay attention to to what he says when it comes to Arsenal, because I know he's incredibly well connected. Okay, so he says a striker is clearly the main focus. And I think all of us probably would have predicted going into the summer that one of the big deals that we'll probably want to do is in that centre forward position. Sesko, Gyokares and Ferguson are all very different types of strikers to what we have in Gabi Jesus and, of course, in, uh, in, in Eddie and Ketia at the moment. We've been using Kai Havertz as a bit of an auxiliary centre forward. And I still think that's something we can do moving down the line. But I think Arsenal would like to have another specialist striker in their ranks. Arsenal are not resting on their laurels. I don't think they've looked at what's happened in the last few weeks, which has been the team clicking and scoring a shit ton of goals and gone, well, that means we don't need a strike. And that's clear that they still feel that that is an area of development and an area in which they can improve uh, the team. Sesco, I have to say, is probably the one of these three that I've seen the least of. Um, So 
if this does develop into something more, we'll do some kind of uh, a research and, and a breakdown on him to try and figure out whether or not he'd be a good fit. But what I hear of him it is always very, very positive. In fact, what we'll do is we'll just have a quick look at how uh, Benjamin Sesko is getting on currently. He plays his football uh, at RB Leipzig in Germany, Slovakian striker. Um, he's uh, played 20 Bundesliga games this season and he's managed seven goals. Uh, in the Champions League, he's got two goals in seven appearances. He's also got two goals in the DFB Pokal in two appearances. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's looking pretty positive. Now, one of the things that jumps out at me here when I look at this from Benjamin Sesko, when I just glance at his transfer mark page, is the fact that he hasn't been in the starting 11 very much. Now, this is interesting to me because if I look at it, according to these statistics, he's only been in the starting 11 39% of the time in the Bundesliga. And I click into his profile and I'm expecting to see that maybe it's because there's been injuries or whatever. And that's not even the case. So I'm a little bit confused by that, I have to say. And somebody that watches the Bundesliga more might be able to shed greater light on that. But, you know, going back right to the beginning of the season, he played 10 minutes, then 15 minutes. There was 26, 18, 15, 23, 12, 14. feels very much like it's kind of horses for courses with Benjamin Sesko, at least in RB Leipzig's eyes. And I might be wrong on this. Um, and there will be someone out there that follows German football far closer than me that could probably shed a bit of light onto as to why this is the case. But he's only started 39% of their Bundesliga games and I can't see a particular injury that's kept him out unless there's been like a kind of underlying problem that they've been managing. I don't know. But that is what jumps out at me when I look at Benjamin Sesko. If I then uh, click into uh, Evan Ferguson's profile, obviously really highly rated, someone who plays on these shores who we've seen a lot more of, I would argue, uh, six goals in 24 appearances for Brighton and Hove Albion in the Premier League this year. Um, again, only in the starting 11, though, 50% of the time. Now, we know Roberto De Zerbi likes to rotate. So there's a bit of context there in my mind, at least. And then there, there maybe is a valid, genuine reason for Sesco not starting as many games as well. But if there is, I don't know it, which is why I can't sit here and say it. Um, but on Ferguson, I think he's someone with immense potential, but I think people have slightly jumped the gun on him, given that he's still only 19 years old. Um, I think we need to be really, really careful with him. Um, he joined uh, Brighton from Bohemians in Ireland back in January 2021. But last season was kind of when he really came to everybody's attention. I like Evan Ferguson. I think he's a good player. I think he's got a lot in his locker and I think he can offer this team a lot. My only problem is the club from which we'd be signing him. Not because I have any particular issue with Brighton and Hove Albion or anything against them, but you know the way Brighton drive a hard bargain. You know that, yeah, they sell, but they sell well. And they sell, um, you know, with huge profit margins. And if they were to sell Evan Ferguson... They're going to make an absolute fortune, okay? They brought him in um, for for nothing, I think. Well, according to Transfer Market, it says question mark. So they don't know what the fee was. If there was a fee from Bohemians in Ireland, it would have been minimal. I'm sure of that. So whatever they sell him for, they're going to make a huge profit on him. I wonder if the, the profit and sustainability stuff that we've seen kind of grip the Premier League in recent times is actually going to restrict them in terms of how much they can demand. And if we're going to see a bit of a shift in the market now as a result of that, I'm certainly anticipating that because nobody spent any real significant money in the January window 
as a result of this. And Arsenal, who have announced another loss, I'm sure will sell players in the summer and generate some funds and will be helped and aided by the fact that they should qualify for the Champions League again next season. But how far would they A, be willing to go? And then will Brighton, given the state of the market, be willing to come down low enough to kind of meet somewhere there? That's the really interesting thing. And you've got to think about value as well. Like if you could get Gyokares for half the price or Sesco for half the price, then you have to weigh up how they compare to somebody like Evan Ferguson. And that's when it becomes a far more complex matter. If I take it on to Gyokares, who for me, out of these three players that we're talking about, and the reason I'm talking about these three players is not because they're the three that I want. It's not because they're the only three that are out there. It's because these are the three players that David Ornstein name-checked in this Q&A that he did. But Gyokaritz, to me, is the one that jumps out at me. He did it in the championship last season at Coventry City, and people said, but it's the championship. You know, how, how does that translate to the Premier League? And I've always been big on that. You remember when we were linked with Emi Buendia, those of you that have been with us on the podcast long enough will remember me saying, hold on a minute, Emi Buendia, great in the championship, but would that translate into the Premier League? And I think it's fair to say and safe to say a few years down the line that he's done okay and injuries have been a bit of a problem for him as well. So maybe it's unfair to judge his numbers too much. But a lot of you would agree that he hasn't been the player that people thought he was. Um, and that's because, partly because he's been injured, of course, a lot, but partly because of the fact that he, um, you know, he he's just struggled to make that jump up and, and still be as impactful on games which is fair enough. Gyokoresh has gone over to Porto, to Porto, I beg your pardon, and he plays, of course, for Sporting, for whom he has 17 goals and seven assists in 21 Liga Portugal uh, appearances this season. That's incredible. He's in the starting lineup every week. He's played 90% of their total minutes and has uh, participated, uh, has participated, I beg your pardon, I don't know why I'm mixing up my words, in 38% of their total goals. That is pretty damn impressive. Now, somebody pointed out in the chat, I think it was Chris Summers, there it is, um, that he believes that uh, Sporting have an 88 million release clause on Gyokares. I don't know if that's in pounds or euros. That might well be the case. I'm not saying that it's not, not for a second. But that doesn't mean that you can't do a deal at less. That means that that's the trigger point at which Sporting have no say in what happens. Um, but you, you've seen many players sign for clubs for prices way below their release clause. The release clause is something that is put in as a bit of a defence mechanism and to protect you from clubs coming in and poaching your players for what you don't think is fair game and fair value. Um, Chris does go on to say that he believes it's 100 million euros and, and the therefore that translates into around about 88 million pounds. Fair enough. Um, and again, I'm not saying that that release clause doesn't exist. Personally, I don't know if it does. Um, I'll take your word for it. But the point I'm making is that doesn't mean that that's what you're going to have to pay to get him. If you remember when we were linked with Alexander Isak a little while ago, prior to him joining Newcastle, of course, there was all this talk about his 90 million euro release clause, which amounted at the time to around about 72 million pounds. And Arsenal, from what I understand and from what I know, were put off by that didn't feel like that was fair value for Alexander Isak because maybe 
at the time that we were looking, his goal record had just dropped off a little bit because he's a player that's consistently suffered with injuries as well. And, and they decided not to go for that. A few months later, Newcastle come in and do a deal at far less than that, which is proof that the, the, the release clause is there to protect you, but it doesn't mean that you can't deal at less. So I, I don't think that we would, A, have to pay that much for Gyokares if we wanted him, because knowing what I know sort of vaguely about Portuguese football and the, the sort of uh, the finances and sporting in particular, I'm not saying that, you know, you'd get him dirt cheap, but I don't think you'd have to pay that, the £88 million that you're talking about there. Equally, though, it's going to come down to the price and you're going to have to weigh these players up against each other if this is Arsenal's shortlist and figure out which one represents the best value. Because as I say, the market has changed. You know, people were looking at this January window and saying, it was really dull and it was really boring and it was really underwhelming. And as someone who works in football media, I felt that too. I really, really did. But what I would say is if you think that that's going to change in the summer dramatically, you've got another thing coming. I think that it will be better than the January window because summer windows tend to see more activity anyway. But is it going to be massively different like our clubs that didn't spend in january just going to flick a switch and start spending um i don't know you know hundreds of millions on on individual players no i don't think that's going to happen i think the landscape is going to change now and i think we have to start adjusting our mindsets to kind of deal with that and accept that because i know what's going to happen we're going to go into the summer particularly if we don't win the premier league or the champions league everyone's going to go we need this we need that and there's going to be a lack of movement probably for large periods and people are going to lose their minds over it. Um, but of those three, Sesco, Ferguson and Gyokares, Gyokares is the one that I would say interests me the most. I'm not going to sit here and talk about Ivan Tony again, been down that road before. I'm not going to talk about Victor Osimhen or any of those guys today because we've done it before. Same with Dusan Vlavic, who's been mentioned um, in the comments as well. But um, yeah, those are my thoughts on uh, on David Ornstein's uh, comments it, with regards to the striker. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about the Pedro Neto bit as well, because I think that's interesting. And the bit about the defence. going to take a really short pause while I'm wrapping up on that stuff, though. If you could leave some questions in the live chat, I'll pick up a few of those as well uh, before uh, I say goodbye. Please do, though, pop a cue at the beginning of the question. It just helps it to stand out in the chat. And it means I don't have to rummage through while I'm trying to talk at the same time. Instead, I can just pick them out nice and quickly, nice and sharply. And there we go. Okay, short pause and we'll be back. We're going to talk Pedro Neto in a moment. Welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Okay, so um, David Ornstein has been speaking about what Arsenal might look to do in the summer. And he's mentioned Pedro Neto, a player that Arsenal are said to be long-term admirers of. But he does mention that he thinks Arsenal would be unwilling to pay what Wolves is uh, asking prices, which we believe is around about £80 million. This is a classic example of a club trying to set their stall really, really high, knowing that you're going to bring them down, but still hoping to make a big gain out of it. And I understand that, you know, if you've got an asset that's really, really valuable to you, then you would do that. But I personally wouldn't spend more than £40 million on Pedro Neto. That is my absolute ceiling. I think he's a good player. I don't think he's a world-class player. I think he's a good player and I think he's someone that could even improve at a club like Arsenal. 
Um, you know, I, I think that he would come in as someone that would be kind of in the rotation cycle, a bit like Leandro Trossard. I don't see him as someone that would come in and displace Saka or displace Martinelli. We've talked a lot about the need to um, bring in someone to back up and support Bukayo Saka. And Pedro Neto feels like a good fit for that. But I'm not spending more than 40, 40 45 million quid for someone that's essentially going to come in as a backup. He's only played. 61% of Wolves' minutes this season, which is quite low. He's only got two goals in the Premier League this season. He's got nine assists, which is pretty positive. Um, but he's missed a lot of games, again, through injury. And I know that you can't always predict this stuff, right? Because we signed Thomas Partey with a spotless injury record. Then he comes to Arsenal and look what happens. We signed Jury and Timber with a spotless injury record, pretty much. He comes in at Arsenal, ACL done, out. Takahiro Tomiyasu was far more available in Serie A prior to his move to Arsenal. And now you look at him and you're always wondering when the next injury is going to come. So I know that you can't always predict this stuff and it shouldn't be the be-all and end-all when trying to figure out whether a player would be a good fit or not. But given that, given that I think Neto becomes another Trossard in this squad, someone that probably isn't in the best 11 but can be very useful in a number of positions, I think there should be a ceiling and a limit on what you'll pay. £80 million is laughable. That's ludicrous. It's outrageous. There is no way that Arsenal are going to pay £80 million for Pedro Neto. If that's what Wolves are going to demand, maybe somewhere out there there's another club that will get closer to that. But I'm pretty confident in saying that if that is the kind of money that Wolves are demanding, Arsenal are not signing Pedro Neto this summer. That's my view. That's my opinion. Feel free to shoot it down. But I just don't see how that deal is feasibly possible when we're talking about those kind of numbers. So that's my take on that. He did mention as well, um, you know, the fact that we're still linked with Zubimendi. Don't really know what's going on in the midfield. And I suspect that um, what happens in the midfield come the summer will be dependent on... Um, will be dependent on what happens with Thomas Partey. And whether or not we can tie Jorginho down to a contract extension. So I think those two are going to be really important in what we do in the midfield. I do think there will be a midfielder coming in. Will it be Martin Zupimendi? It looks like he's the most likely at the moment because he's the one that there's the most noise around. I've said on a, a video not so long ago, on a podcast not so long ago, that I'm not sure he's the answer. And I, I stick by that. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, but yeah. You know, midfield is, is a really interesting one. I think it's an area where we have to move people out to bring people in and for it to make sense. And then the defensive stuff, you know, I've said it loads of times this season. I felt going into the campaign that our defensive unit was complete in terms of the bodies, in terms of the skill set, in terms of the versatility in the, the group, the unit that we had all together. I thought that that was a really good defensive unit to be kind of building on and moving forward on. But Zinchenko, Tommy Asu in particular, and obviously Timber's been really unlucky this season, have consistently broken down with injuries. And at some point, you have to be ruthless and go, well, if I can't rely on your fitness, then you can't be a part of my completed unit. And it was the same kind of situation that we found ourselves in at times with Kieran Tierney. Good player, really like him. But you're not fit enough. You know, you're not... Let, let me rephrase that. To say you're not fit enough is probably harsh. You're not fit enough of the time is what I should be saying. And that causes a manager problems. So I wouldn't be surprised, as David Ornstein says, if we do go in and try and bring in a defender as well.
Okay, uh, let's get a couple of your questions uh, from the live chat. I'll react to some of your comments as well for the last few minutes of the show. Remember, like the video, subscribe if you haven't done so already to the YouTube channel, if that's where you're joining us from. If you're listening on audio, please leave us a review and subscribe as well. It really does help. Short pause and we'll take your questions to wrap up today's episode of the Chronicles of Agoon. Okay, let's do this. Um, I just want to address this because uh, I said that I wouldn't pay more than 40 for, for Neto and N17 Gunner says we paid 65 for Havertz. I'm saying I wouldn't pay more than 40 for Neto. And I'm pretty sure, in fact, I know I said that the 65 that we paid for Havertz at the time we were doing the deal was too much. So I've been pretty consistent in that. Um, I've said before that I think that the Kai Havertz one was one that Arsenal were maybe willing to invest a little bit more in because they thought that he could cover as a striker, which he has, and as a midfielder, which he has. So I think that's maybe where there was a willingness to, to push the boat out a little bit. Plus, Kai Havertz didn't have a really patchy injury record like Pedro Neto does, which is a big red flag for me. Um, Tudor Rocket says, Kubo or Neto, which would you prefer? I really like the look of Kubo. I do. Um, but I think Neto has that explosiveness that really is a big deal and a big factor in Premier League football. I think Kubo might be a little bit more technical from the limited time I've seen him play. But Neto is is someone that I would trust to kind of slot in and fit in and, and work quicker. But there are obviously red flags against his name, as I've mentioned. When it comes to Kubo, you'd obviously pick him up at far less than £80 million that Wolves are said to be looking for, uh, of course, for um, for Pedro Neto. So that might be a factor here as well. But I would lean to, if it was nothing to do with money, nothing to do with how easy they are to obtain and all the rest of it, I would go with Neto currently out of the two. Okay. Um, what else have we got? Uh, Afsar says, is the postponement of the Chelsea game a disadvantage? In my opinion, it is. And it gives Manchester City and Liverpool an edge. So both of those clubs got through to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup, which means that weekend they'll be playing as well, which means they won't have an advantage on us in the league, i.e. they won't get a game ahead of us. But we constantly have played after those two sides this year. And it's been really, really frustrating and annoying, actually, because we're playing under greater pressure. Um, is it a disadvantage? Me personally, I never like the idea of in the business end of the season, having a really long break. Having a week off is great because I think it gives you enough time to recover and prepare for the match ahead, but it's not long enough for you to lose momentum maybe. Whereas this period that we're going to have, which is I think, what, 15 days or something, that's too long. That is too long in my opinion. So I think it is a bit of a disadvantage, yes. Um, and the other thing is, if we go further in the Champions League, we're going to have more midweek games and then we have to find somewhere to fit this Chelsea game in. Liverpool are not in the Champions League. Liverpool are playing in the Europa League and Liverpool, although they have injuries right now, when they get people back, will be more than able to, to field half a side and beat the likes of Slavia Prague with all due respect to them. Whereas for us, we're going to have to be at our competitive best to continue progressing in the Champions League. And so to have another midweek game that we have to throw in there is more of a disadvantage to Arsenal than it would be to Liverpool. And yeah, so I don't see it as a positive. Um, and, you know, you got that international break in between as well, which means you can't really do that much. And you're just sitting on your hands, hoping that people come back fit. 
Um, Tudor Rocket also asks, which I think is a really good question. Should we sell Laconga or sell Partey and say buy to Elneny and then just buy a solid or expensive left eight? Um, look, Laconga is someone that we're going to be able to raise funds for. Um, would I like to see him given a chance at Arsenal? Maybe over preseason and we have a look at him. Um, he's been much improved at Luton Town, but is he Arsenal level? I don't know yet is the answer to that. Thomas Partey, it, it's, it's nothing to do with his capabilities as a footballer. It's purely down to whether you think his body's going to break down um, again and again and again. And if that's the case, then you have to move him on. Elneny will go. I'm certain of that. Arsenal gave Elneny the contract that they did to help him through the ACL injury. Uh, it was kind of a loyalty thing. I know from what I've been told that it was on a really reduced wage. And I know people kind of overlooked that when they were analysing it and were really critical of Arsenal while we handing out charity contracts. It was a really significant step down from what I understand just to kind of keep him employed, give him somewhere to do his rehab with the hope that that puts him in a position this summer where he can go on. Um, and they're almost rewarding his loyalty to the club. Uh, Kevy. Uh, uh, Kevin, I beg Kevy. Kevin <laughs> Fitzsimon says, 35 million plus Eddie for Ferguson. Uh, yeah, um, I don't think Brighton will go for that because I think for Brighton, it's all about the books. And, um, you know, I know they'd have to go out and buy a striker, but I think they'd go and find a striker from somewhere obscure for, for half of, of that money and therefore they'd be making more profit on Evan Ferguson if they sold him for 60, for example, and bought a striker in for five to 10, which we know Brighton are really good at doing. So I don't think they'd go for it, but I'd probably go for that. I think um, lots of questions about who I think would be our, our number one striker, who I think would be uh, the answer to our midfield. And the truth is at the moment, guys, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I'd need to sit down and really think about this and analyze it. This is topics and subjects for a whole nother podcast. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that another day, uh, when I've got a bit more time and some evidence that I can present to you guys as well as to why I think those players would be the right players. Hacker says our transfer values, uh, low key hitting a ceiling ever since Rice and Kane, uh, went for a hundred million. Well, if they hadn't already, they're definitely going to now because, um, because, uh, this profit and sustainability stuff has, has literally, it's just strangled everybody hasn't it it really really has and i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing but i think it's going to be kind of painful um at the beginning while clubs are adapting to it and obviously when your finances are taken into account over the past three seasons if you've been doing it really badly for three seasons it's going to take you three seasons to get to a point maybe where you can then invest again in the way that you want so there's going to be some pain along the way but generally speaking i think this is a good thing for the premier league i really really do and i hope that it continues to be enforced. I hope that we don't get into a position where maybe they feel like the transfer activity isn't as exciting, that the the club, the bigger clubs are not able to, um, you know, bring in uh, sort of the, the biggest names because of the finances and the restrictions. I hope they don't start to think that that's impacting the product and then reverse on this or backtrack on this or be a little bit more lenient on this. I think overall and for the long term, this is the best thing for the Premier League. So I'm happy to to accept that it's going to be, um, you know, maybe not as exciting in a lot of ways for a little while, if it means that the Premier League gets back on track, because I think the spending has gotten out of control. And I don't like, and I know other people would disagree with this because they don't care, but I don't like the Premier League being miles ahead of everybody else financially. I hate that because I think in Europe, it really tells. And I want Europe to be competitive. You know, I, I really want that. Okay. Um, I think, 
we're going to let uh, let me go here we go damien kelly says didn't you do a show dedicated to the girona striker now you don't know about strikers seeking more material to make content harry no look i i um i like him i do but that was kind of some thoughts on him at that time because i'd, I'd watched him that weekend in full it doesn't mean that now I would say he's the one and we have to go and get him. I'd need to sit down and look at a lot of players. And I want to see how the the sort of um, the rest of the season goes, I guess, before I'm sitting there saying this is the guy absolutely 100% for us uh, to be going out and trying to sign. Uh, OK, what else have we got? Um, Damien also says, who smacked you on the left side of your face, Harry? No one, mate. I had this huge spot yesterday just popped out of nowhere. Huge. Um, and uh, and I was going to the London Football Awards and I really didn't want to go with this thing on my face. So I I popped it, but I tried so hard to pop it that I scratched it. And now it's kind of like scabbed up today, but I don't want to pick it again because I don't want it to stay there. So I'm hoping it will just clear up over the next couple of days. But yeah, not ideal. Uh, not ideal at all. Uh, Jid says, are we discarding loyalty to servants of the club all in the name of ruthlessness? We always demand players be subservient to us, but as soon as they hit bad form or injuries, we turn on them. It's, it's a good point, Jid. And and I think actually what Arsenal did with Mohamed Elneny is the complete opposite to that, where they went good servant to the club, good guy, people like having him around, kind of a model professional, obviously has his uses in training. Rob Holding was someone, wasn't he, that we kept at the club maybe um, for longer than we should have because of what he offered behind the scenes and on the pitch. And, you know, he's talked about that. He was used as someone that the young players could kind of have as a bit of a connecting point to the first team and, and, and all that. So we don't really understand the dynamic behind the scenes all of the time. Um, but I think with Elneny, we've, we've done the opposite to that. We've given him a contract because he's had an injury that would probably mean him left out on his ass without a club and then make it very, very difficult for him to A, have the rehab, but then when he comes back, find the club straight away. Um, so, yeah, I think he's, I think it's been the opposite with Elneny, but I, I do get and take your point, and I think it's a valid point. It really, really is. Look, guys, I'm going to leave it there. If you want more Premier League um, chat and all the rest of it, you can join me on TalkSport 2 this afternoon from 3 p.m., right through until 6 p.m. Uh, Jam-packed show coming your way. We'll be building up to all the weekend's football. Should be great fun. Uh, join me on that. But in the meantime, if you could please leave a like on this video and subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already. If you're listening on audio, please do leave us a review as well. It really, really, really does help. And we'll be back uh, over the weekend with more. Don't go anywhere. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you're always tuned in to the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. Until the next one. Take care, guys.